Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the podcast, Working Drummer. Today, we've got Nick Buda. Nick is a full-time session player here in Nashville, Tennessee. Nick's got some cool stories and uh, good information about making the transition from road work to staying in town and doing session work. He's also got some cool stories about uh, working with Taylor Swift. Uh, if you want to find out more information about this podcast and others, uh, including some pictures, you can go to workingdrummer.net and, of course, visit us on Facebook. So here's Nick Buda. break when I first moved into my house and I was building rebuilding the walls on the inside and you know doing all this stuff I actually pulled a tendon here okay. picking up a piece of drywall oh. ironically building the practice room <laughs> in which I'd spend some time <laughs> yeah. and I'm out on my back porch and it's beautiful valley out there and I hear my neighbor down the street practicing making a ton of noise you're like ah. Oh. Why am I, Why am I spending more time and money on <laughs> yeah. this when he doesn't care? Yeah, yeah. Man, I want to get. I want to talk about how you, what you're doing, studio wise. Yeah. Um, it's, you're kind of in a. Uh, I'd say uh, compared to so many working drummers, it's, you're in a bit of a minority. With with this is how you spend your time. This is how you spend your energy. Where your this is your bread and butter. Yeah. But um, I, it's always fun to, to talk to guys about um, their past. Like, what brought you... I mean, we're in Nashville now. We're yeah. talking in Nashville. Yeah. But at the same... I want to be able to talk to all different players from all over the country. But um, we're in Nashville. So what brought you here? What I kind of know your story a little bit. Yeah. Um, your background. But I want to know kind of what how you ended up here. Yeah. Um, well, it did start back when I was... A kid uh, born in South Africa. Yeah. Um, we moved from South Africa when I was uh, 12, and we were definitely coming to the States, but um, we were also moving illegally. It was in the height of apartheid, and it was not, we did not, we weren't going to take the time that it was going to take to get a green card. My mom was very against everything that was going on there politically. Yeah. I was, like I said, 12. If we had waited for a green card, I might have turned. 18 before we got it and at that point I would have had to join the military the army there you know wow and she was just not she was and not only that but there was violence in the streets there were bombings at shopping malls anyway we were out so we literally got on a plane and I've got cousins that live in New York that have been there forever and we went uh, we stopped in New York for a little while and then we just came to Nashville because of the three music centers my aunt is a singer-songwriter and at the time when I was a kid in South Africa she was a young pop star in South Africa uh, had music videos on TV and all that but just just in South Africa so I mean Debbie was was big in South Africa and that was it <laughs> you know yeah. so the idea was to expand uh, both for her and also politically just we just to get out so uh, Nashville was the most under the radar of between New York and LA and Nashville at the time. And this is now the 86, mid eighties. So we moved to Nashville. I started school. I was in, I started seventh grade in the States and went through high school living in Nashville. And the whole time I was in high school, we were literally under the radar. Like 
Wow. We had figured out a way to be able to survive um, just getting money out of South Africa. Because when you do that, you can't just bring money over. There are limits as to what you can, there's a limit as to the amount that you can travel on and all that sort of yeah. stuff. So we were living, I mean, essentially like refugees, like in a little apartment. We moved in Cape Town. We had a house on the side of the mountain overlooking the ocean. My mom had this big gig as a, as a, a buyer for a big clothing store there. And um, we moved to the States and had lived in a little like college-style Vandy apartment. Wow. Uh, you know, with nothing. You mm-hmm. know. My senior year, we actually moved to a house that we rented. After I graduated high school, we went back to Cape Town. Um, I took a semester off partially for some initial touring I was doing with a guy named Matt Gaten, which was awesome. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, and then, um, but we went back to Cape Town for like um, six weeks or two months or something, mm-hmm. and we're getting able to get green cards at that point, um, which I would have had to do if I was going to go to college. There's no ways, you know, I mean, even, even the high school I was at, they kept asking my mom for proof of residency and whatever. <laughs> and my mom kept saying, I, you know, the lawyers have got to get back to us and blah, blah, blah. And they just... You know, it was a great high school, and luckily they sort of turned a blind eye to it. <laughs> but this was a time when it seemed like the political environment, though, people, were they anxious to help you at that time? Was the, I mean, who? As far as, like, what was going on in South Africa, as things were cooling down at the time you were graduating from high school, was it yes. easier to get a green card? No, not no. necessarily. It's just that that time we had been, the application had been in for that as many years. And, I mean, it takes a long time because, obviously, you know, you've got to go through at least one round of being screwed by lawyers. And then, yeah. you know, and that's two years wasted. And then, you know, I mean, and it happens with everybody. It's just some people aren't able to afford to continue to do it's a very expensive thing we were lucky enough mm. you know to be able to carry that through all the way so yeah anyway and you got your gun permit right about there yeah right at the same time <laughs> that's right and then started <laughs> berating uh, farmers <laughs> all at the same time but you were just but you were just, <laughs> yeah. yeah immediately I was like <laughs> go back to your home <laughs> yeah Nick you were yeah um, so anyway, to answer your question, so yeah. so anyway, so after sorry, completely tangent. So we 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 after high school, I knew I wanted to play music. I had honestly, weirdly enough, like I'd heard about Berkeley, and then I'd had a conversation with Vinnie Calhuda that I'd met backstage at a Sting concert. Oh wow! When I was a junior, right before I was a senior, maybe my early, my senior year in high school, whatever. And I'd already thought like, I think Berkeley's cool. And I think it would be cool to go there. And then after talking to Vinny about it, I was like, I'm going to Berkeley. There's no two ways, you know? And, um, I was, I was forced to apply to a couple, like two, three schools Mm -hmm. just because you can't college council is one of the, I mean, you know, they won't let you apply to just one. So Berkeley was almost my safety school and the one I really wanted to go to, you know? And I, I got in and it was all good. And, um, and so I did that and, and at the end of Berkeley I thought well uh, you know I had friends that were had stayed here in Nashville and had kind of moved up the ladder and so I thought I'd come back here and check it out and country had blown up in the meantime Garth Brooks had been huge and all of a sudden it was a lot more rock than it had been before yeah. and I thought well maybe I'll do that for a little while but then as soon as I moved back here I got a call to go and play with Colonel Bruce Hampton in Atlanta yeah. Uh, because a friend of mine at Berkeley, a guitar player, had moved back to his home of Atlanta and started mm-hmm. playing with Bruce. And so 
I had been a huge fan of his through high school, playing yeah. around with the Cram Rescue Unit and all that stuff. Yeah. So I moved to Atlanta. Um, and I did that for a couple years. And then I just got worn out on... It was great. It was like college education had happened, and then this road education happened with Bruce, and I learned a lot of like life lessons in yeah. that deal. And then... Once again, it was a crossroads of like, you know, go to L.A., go to Nashville. Yeah. And I almost went to L.A., but I had some friends that there was like almost a gig waiting in Nashville if I had come back here. So I came back and, and I've been back ever since. And I just moved from, when I first got back, I, was, I went straight into touring because I had opportunity to play with Cindy Thompson, who at the time was, had just had number one and she was huge and the band was great and I just met all these friends and blah 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 mm-hmm. so I went out with her and then that one tour leads to another and sure. um, and they just got to a point that I decided I didn't I think I had been on a tour with an artist who was, who was great opening up for Brooks and Dunn on one of their Neon Circus tours where they have five bands yeah. and it's a it is a an, an, it's in a summer adult camp circus is what it is <laughs> and it was fun but, you know, because it's like 60 people on the road from one weekend to another because it's huge, yeah, you know, yeah. and that was right as Rascal Flats were coming up and uh, yeah. Brad Paisley was on it and it was a whole big thing. But I saw a lot of guys that had made a life out of touring and some of them enjoyed it and some of them didn't and didn't have any other option. And yeah. I just thought, you know, I don't know, I wasn't loving that gig for me. It was just sort of, uh, it was a... It was sort of eye-opening being involved in such a big tour at that age for that summer. But you were able to see that right away. I mean, it, yeah. you didn't you didn't have to start. I, I think it's it's nice that you you kind of you were able to uh, not have to wade wade through this whole period of time. Like, okay, we're in the van, then yeah. we're in a nicer truck, then we're yeah. in this, and then we now we've got the tour bus, and all of it seems enticing. If you're on that tour. You're seeing the way it is from top to bottom, right? And it's like if this is the end of it, if this is the pinnacle right. of touring, then you can really ask yourself, this "Well, is what I want to do." And I mean, no. the reality is, is I had been I had been touring ever since high school. I mean, when I even though I went through college, I was touring the whole time, uh, mm-hmm. just yeah. sort of regionally, you know. Yeah, like when sure. I was in. And I was in so you were doing the van thing? Oh, for years. years. And sure. it started, I mean, it started in high school. I told it, like, I started with this this guy, Matt Gaden, and that's a whole story within itself. But he wrote a song, Everlasting Love, and has had some big hits um, mm-hmm. in the in the day that are still freaking generating insane amounts of money, you know? Oh, wow. you know. Anyway, he had seen me play at a very sort of random event, surprise party for that his daughter had thrown, and... Um, I, like two years later got a hold of me to do a, a bunch of shows with him and so he'd seen me play like sophomore in high school and then my senior year in high school he got a hold of me and said I really love your energy I love you the way you play will you play some of these gigs with me and I didn't know who he was he was just a dude that was actually going to pay me to play a gig and that was yeah. like, you know, yeah. like awesome so um, and they were there was a, like at the time it was a 328 performance hall actually the night of my graduation from high school I couldn't go to the party because I was doing this gig with Mac at 328 <laughs> and it was this big industry deal I didn't know at the time that yeah. it was it was like it was packed everybody was sitting at tables and enjoying Mac do his thing you know that um uh, 
even with him that was touring in a van for a while for a, for a couple of weeks, you know, going out with those guys, which included Byron House, who's a phenomenal bass player. Oh, yeah. Tom Rohde was playing percussion. Oh, you wow. know, people I didn't, I just met for the first time. What a sweetheart. And, and every one of those guys I saw, like Tom Rohde, we'd done these rehearsals. I'm like, it's so cool to play with a percussionist, you know. Yeah. He's got all the stuff. He obviously is, knows what he's doing. Yes. And then some short amount of time later, I was watching TV and a James Taylor concert came on. Mm-hmm. I was like, holy crap, that's Tom Rohde playing percussion. Yeah. I couldn't believe that these guys, yeah. I just didn't know who they were, but they were all freaking legends already, you know. So anyway, Mac was a big eye-opener as well for that. And I, I love the fact, not to interrupt you, but yeah. I love the fact that uh, this guy saw you at a random gig. As a sophomore in high school, with my little like Chili Pepper style punk rock band, <laughs> <laughs> right? But but I mean, if if you if you take every gig seriously, not knowing who's listening to you, I mean, I know as a yeah. sophomore in high school, that's the last thing on your mind. Yeah. But if anything, that probably drove home the fact that people are listening, people yeah. are watching. Well, you know, the thing about that is, as a sophomore in high school, you haven't been you haven't been passed over very much or burned very much and so you have that heart you have that young energy that you want to always have yes i think as you get older and things become tougher you may lose a little bit of that and if you let that get to you on a gig like why am i doing this stupid gig blah 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 blah. yeah you know if you're there playing and somebody has paid to come and see you Yes. Then you are not doing a stupid gig. <laughs> you no. know, no. You, you're lucky to be playing it, and if you're getting paid, you're lucky to be getting paid. And you know, that's. I think, I think it's interesting that. I mean, you bring up a good point, but I think when you're that young, you you just go out there every time. You right. Right. All right. Right. I can understand doing a gig, then you're just not happy. Like musically, it's just not what you want to do, and it's and it is one thing to say like no matter what you're playing for a living, so be happy. But the reality is, is if you're not enjoying either the personalities on the gig mm-hmm. or the music on the gig, yeah. it 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 can be wearing on you. But yeah, quit and and do what you. I feel like well, I love we, what you're saying with this because that's almost kind of going into your touring experience in the studio, you making yeah. that decision. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think that there's a point at which you got to say, I haven't, you know, it, it would be much easier to do something else for a living. Music is not the wise choice. Yeah. But we do it because we love it and because it's, it is more than an addiction. It's an addiction because it feels good, you know, yes. and, and if you are lucky enough to be able to uh, make that generate a living and therefore a life for you, that's mm-hmm. a wonderful thing. Uh, at the same time, if you have gone through the hardships of uh, waiting through being patient and all this sort of stuff to get a gig, and then you're not happy on the gig, then why did you go through the years of, uh, you know, even if practicing was more because you love playing, you still went through all that time doing it. You yes. Know, put yourself in a position where you it does give back to you. You've put so much into it. Make it give back to you what you want out of it, you know? And if you're in a position where... It's like, this just isn't doing it for me. Mm-hmm. And do something else, you know? And whether it's... So, so I've been on the road for X amount of years, and I told this, so this big tour with, uh, with opening for Brooks and Dunn. It was an eye-opener, but I also knew I don't care about doing this. I don't care just to be on a big stage playing music. Mm-hmm. The music's got to be right. Yeah. I want to enjoy the environment that I'm in. And so I just decided, you know what? I'm just not going to do this tour anymore, and I'm going to try and focus on getting sessions. And so... I came back to town, um, 
But that's not so easy. I mean, sessions, you can't just say, I want to do sessions and tell people and then they hire you. In fact, even when you've been doing for a while, they don't necessarily, (laughs) you know, I mean, it just depends. So, and at the whole time I've been, I got called to sub for Billy Dean randomly for a while who, it was one of those things where I, it was just a perfect example of like, why am I doing this? This is country. This is not what I want to be doing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was good money and it was like two weeks or three weeks or Possibly even over a month's worth of gigs, but it was a limited time. And I'd already committed, and I was like, all right, fine, I'll just do it. And it ended up being great. The band was great. He's he's the nicest dude. He is, yes. Great player, great singer. I think I did it the year after you did. Yeah? Yeah, it was after you. Yeah, yeah. And it was one of those things where it was, you you know, you got to keep an open mind because you put too much, you know, pre, you know, thought or judgment into something. Mm-hmm. Uh, even it, that could stop you from doing it and it could be the coolest thing if you had just done it and that's I learned that from that gig I was like man I had a great time playing this yeah perfect you know moving on you know um, do you think that some of the music though like on that particular gig working with Billy because some of this stuff is very I wouldn't say very traditional but it has very traditional elements as far mm-hmm. as some of the drum grooves sure um, the four and the floor kind of um do you think that that took you to a different place drumming that maybe you wouldn't have fallen into, you know, based I on think, your interests, your style? I think that um, maybe, but you know, the thing about it that made it cool, I think, well, a he was a super nice dude, yeah, 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 which made made a big difference. But b he's he was a great musician, and I wasn't expecting that. You know what I mean? Uh, unfortunately, we end up not always working with great musicians. Yeah. Um, but it's um, but yeah, I think that was a surprise out of it. it was like yes there were some standard country elements to it but that to me is that's perfectly great I love that in fact um, but uh, garage door but it all makes a difference to uh, whether they're great players or not if, if you're working for somebody that can really lead a band because they're really good yeah. it just makes it makes all the difference it almost doesn't matter what style it is you know you about your experience playing in jam bands and if that has anything to do with with your experience with that improv- improvisation yeah um it, has that helped you in the studio world coming up with parts being able to improvise quickly trying to come up with something up, as opposed to working in a very structured environment yeah um yeah you know, you know it's a it is interesting i mean um Although I was in the jam band scene for you know a couple two three years doing the Bruce thing, it was an intensified two or three years, like a tons of gigs in that amount of time. But I was still raised on James Taylor and mm-hmm. you know Eagles and you know that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I was very much raised in a song form type of environment. Yes. Um, obviously, going to college is, and and going through that learning period of just throwing everything at the wall yeah. you play a bunch and I think doing the jam band scene with, with Bruce was a perfect time because mm-hmm. I'd just come out of college and it was letting it rip all at the same time you know yeah. and then being here moving here I think getting into the song form and, uh, with the with the touring at first was a good transition to then being in the studio and coming up with parts that you know when you're touring 
you know, it's a different mindset. Like, A, you're not coming up with parts. You're you're playing songs. And, mm-hmm. and you don't want to step on vocalists even then. But you're not coming up with, like, you're not just hearing an acoustic vocal and then having to think, what would be the cool thing to play on here, you know? Yeah. Um, and in the session world, you do have to do that. And there's and there's a lot of learning about, like, well, you could do this or you could do this or you could do this. Which one do you pick? Which road do you go down yeah. for your yeah. first pass that's going to work for whatever? And some And there's a lot of... I, I took a long time of going through like uh, being a little hesitant about what I was playing, which way to go, because there were so many options. Where did you find your? It's like okay, I, I want to show what I can do, or you're trying to be more conservative. Well, this is the thing. I mean, there was a long time of me of of like this as a drummer would be the coolest thing to do. Yes, but this for the song. Yes. This other thing for the song might be the better way to go. Mm-hmm. And I would tend to go the drummer route because it almost in rebellion to country songs, you know, because mm-hmm. country is a very narrow format of what's acceptable with drums, yeah. you know. So we just saw Steve Gadd play the other night, you yes. know, Wonder of Wonders, you know. Yes. Uh, he would not make it in the Nashville studio scene. You come up with one interesting part, and the reality is it's probably not going to get used because. Because partially the songs just don't call for it, and partially the scene is just, it just doesn't, you, you have to be a little more um, under the radar with, with stuff like that, you know? And, and not saying that it can't room? be done. Do you think there's more room within the last few years? I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't know everything that's on the radio, yeah, I'm not yeah, really yeah, sure, but it, yeah. it, I just wonder if there's just a more relaxed, more rock and roll kind of approach to things. It is a lot more. There is a lot more rock, and I think that there have been some producers that have come in that have expanded the soundscape of what's acceptable in the yeah, country. Sure, you know, sure. which I think is cool that there is. You can have some interesting, darker sounds or some weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not necessarily a loop. I mean, unfortunately, loops have really taken over recently. Programming has taken over. The L.A. programming scene has definitely made its home in Nashville now. But um, but there is still, let's say, organic-y kind of stuff being done here, which which is cool. That being said, though, parts-wise, you still have to... You know, everything is based on. There's very little that's that I've found that's done here that's not really stuck to a grid, mm. and that's even the same live. I mean, you go see your favorite country artist; more likely than not, they're playing to tracks. Yeah. Their their show is on a grid almost. You yeah, know, and sure. and that's you know that's fine. I guess I just wish there was a little more on the other side of it. You know, yeah. like I wish country was a little more diverse, so you could have artists that really did make let's say Emmy Lou style records mm-hmm. and it was okay to explore those areas and still have it being played on the radio but unfortunately I think radio is although it's accepting a little more of a rock side it's yeah. still pretty narrow in it's what it's going to accept to play right overall yeah I mean, you said you were uh, when you were coming up with parts you're thinking what would what would be cool for a drummer to do? Yeah, and so you went down that path. Yes, and and I mean sometimes. How to serve. How yeah, to and that's serve. the thing. It's it's a tough it's tough to be able to figure out what <laughs> what's going to make a producer say that's the coolest thing. Yes, that just made it, and uh, that's too busy. You know, let's rein it in. You know, and yeah. of course, I'm I am generally rebellious when it comes to when it comes to playing on stuff, and that has done me in sometimes. You know, there are people. I think there are probably people that see me as being a busy player, so they they are 
you know, hesitant to call me because of that. There are probably other people that see me as really bringing some energy to something because... Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, and this is, I mean, I've just taken the route of, there have been plenty of times that I've questioned what I've done because, like, maybe I shouldn't have done that because, you know, I do want that guy to call me back. Yeah. But, man, you just, you've got to play what comes to you, what your heart says is the right thing. And you learn over time. You learn how to be, honestly, I think you learn how to be more musical if you have that musicality. If you have an ear for it, yeah. you learn what works. It can feel good to play, and then you listen back and like, ah, it's too busy. There's too much stuff on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you come back and you play something more simple that, A, still feels good to play, and yes. then you hear it back and you say, oh, yeah, okay, that feels better in the track. Nice, nice. On the other hand, I've also had the opposite happen where I'm like, man, I, I held back too much on that. I think it could have really, really stepped out some more because... It's too easy to hold back. It's too easy to play down the middle. And yes, of course it works, but could it be cooler? Could it be better? Yeah, sure, sure. And I don't know how many, honestly, I don't know how many drummers in this town really think about that. And like I said, I think sometimes it's to the, to the detriment, to my detriment to, to do that. But man, drums, it's like, I remember seeing Victor Wooten play bass back in the day. Now granted, a little over the top, but... As a kid, I was like, holy crap, Victor Wooten's incredible. Yeah. And I remember him giving an interview once and saying, you know, bass is not just hitting root notes in the background of a song. You know, it's an instrument with a voice, and it, mm-hmm. it deserves to be heard, you know? Right, and, I understand. And although he, he had a megaphone on, uh, <laughs> you know, which is cool for what that was, but I agree with that, and it's the same with drums. And it can be subtle. But yeah. it's still, it doesn't have to just be the thing that keeps the beats so people can bop their heads. Like, there's cooler stuff to be done. And even though country as a genre is a little narrow, it is up to the little things in the songs that can make them cool. That the layman may never hear, but they also may never hear why the little things that Carlos Vega did with James Taylor were so uh, yeah. absolutely badass. Yeah. But that's what made it badass. <laughs> yes, yes. So why can't that happen for any number of country artists out there today? You know, but it starts with the player. Right. The player has to push it. The producer has to either not hear it or be okay with it. And then and then it moves up from there, you know. I, I wanna ask you about something, um, kinda get your reaction to this, related to exactly what you're saying yeah. and your relationship with producers. Yeah. When I uh, first moved to town I discovered Greg Morrow. Oh yeah. And I just, I loved his sound. I loved his, the way he hit the snare drum. Mm-hmm. Um, just this kind of reckless abandonment yeah. to his playing. And I was talking to a producer and he said, I don't like to use him. I like to use this guy. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, how do you, how can you not like what Greg does? Yeah. I, I, I think he's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, but I prefer this guy, and I didn't think that that guy. And I, I had this epiphany. Yeah. And again, I was very new to town. Yeah. People will hire you for what you do, yeah. or they will not hire you for what you do. Absolutely. And every time I try and sound like somebody else, it's a weaker impression of sounding like me. Yeah. I play me the best. Yeah, absolutely. I do not play Greg Morrow. As good as Greg Morrow. Sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's my voice. Yeah. What you do is your voice. Yeah. 
So people are going to hire you. I mean, I love your confidence in saying, this is what I do. This is what is driving me to express and to kind of be a, uh, you know, I'm representing the the drumming community and what this instrument can do and what it can bring to music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I love that. What... um, I know that it's like this is your job, so you have to balance your relationships with producers and engineers right. and other musicians. Right. And you're you're a servant in many ways. You're there to serve the song, serve the artist. Sure. But striking that balance between expressing yourself on the instrument, being who you are, and saying, "Look, when you hire me, yeah, this, this is what you're going to get." Yeah. You know, I if you don't like, like that, there's in this town. Yeah. There's the next guy. Oh God! There's tons of next guys. Absolutely, yeah. and that I mean that is the one thing about this town is there are a, a there there are a big group of players. Even just in the session in the recording world, there's a fairly big group of players. You can have a list of your favorite six, mm-hmm. knowing that you're not going to get to number five ever because one through four is going to be available no matter what. You know, but the reality is is. Like the thing that I learned about all that is you would like to think that producers have the same ear as you do for your part. You'd like to think that producers mm. are, are the one guy in the room that can, that can understand what the guitar player is doing, can understand what the drummer is doing and all that sort of stuff in, independently so that when you're coming up with a drum part, you're thinking it's cool because of this and the producer can hear that and say, yes, that is cool because of this. But the reality is, is that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned that because, you know, it's just, you just, it's, it's a tough call because mm-hmm. you have to, you have to do the, what you have to play what you feel is the best thing for the moment. And you learn, and that grows, that matures as you mature, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as a player. I, I, every year I probably look back and think, oh, I'm a different player this year than I was last year mm-hmm. to some degree because of the lessons I've learned dealing with different producers mm-hmm. uh, and just learning learning what works. I probably simplify the older I get and I'm sure that's probably the case with most people. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm sure that's probably what it is. But, um, but yes, you have to balance. You have to, you have to understand that you are, you are a, you're a vehicle for the artist or producer to get what they want out of their project. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also want to be that the one that they keep coming back to because for some reason. And there's certain um, alliances in this town that I don't really understand. There's certain producers that go with certain drummers for reasons that because the only reason is that they have continued to use them and they feel comfortable. Mm. You could they could listen to another drummer in a session, play on something, and yeah. say, I love the way that guy works. Right. But they're still gonna call the guy that they feel comfortable with sure. first. Um, even if that guy isn't the right guy for the job, yeah. in this town, it's about uh, relationships. Yeah. And, and it was a... To me, it, it's great and a little unfortunate at the same time because there's so many great players in this town. Yeah. Um, um, at the same time, there are other guys, honestly, that are perfectly good, but they're not going to raise the bar. And I, I mean, th- this is... <laughs> I'm going to go down on record. Like, there are, there are a few guys that I think will definitely raise the bar. 
and there are other guys that will get the job done and be perfectly good. And that's fine. I just, from my point of view, it, it'd be great if it was always raising the bar. Right. Because, like I said, it's not... A producer can only do so much, and I think that they can make an overall record sound good. Yeah. But they are dealing with the parts that they're given, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I think... I don't know. I think there's there's... I think it can be... It can continue to be cooler. I think the influence that's coming over from other cities right now because of what's going on in Nashville and the boom that's happening here, yes. I think is a great thing. Yeah. And I think that those influences are going, like they have already, I think, continued to help uh, country grow in a, yeah. in a cooler way. Right. You know, I think after this programming thing takes its side of the genre, it's not going to go away, but hopefully it will become such a thing that that side of the genre will be that and there will be another side that will be... Um, Maybe, let's say, what your Sheryl Crow-ish type of people are trying to bring here mm-hmm. to do that will still be having a band and having mm-hmm. it sound like rootsy rock, but still in a country format. Yeah. I yeah. think there's a yeah. lot of room there to grow yeah. that, that hasn't been done yet. You know, Are you working with um, people, non-country artists? I mean, I know that this is the kind of the dominant style in this town, sure. but, but as far as because of the influence or the influx of uh, people into this in the city... Uh, how that's changing the landscape as far as musical styles and yeah. you know that to consider and, and it, doing the work that you do in studios and working with producers is that still is that is that another element as far as styles um, I think so I mean I haven't to be honest I haven't done a lot of of big artists that are non-country artists that have come to this town and I, and that's honestly I'd love to because that's I mean that's where my head's at anyway you know yeah. and it, and the the funny thing is some of the big artists that come here to do stuff even when it's not going to be particularly country hire the like the big guys that have played on a lot of country records that have been here for a lot of time because they're the big session guys so they call yeah. them first and and that could be the good I mean you know I'm not saying that they don't obviously they play great so yeah. It's fine. It's just funny that like they come here because it's such a great musician click to make a possibly non-country record, but use all the guys that always play on country records. Mm-hmm. Um, but on saying that, you know, they're great players. Like you talk about Morrow, yeah. Like Morrow can't play on anything and make it sound great. You know, of course, <laughs> you know, it's gonna have and it's gonna have his stamp on it. Which that's the biggest thing to me is if they're going to play on a record, have them play because you love the way they played on something and you yes. can hear them play on it. Like the one thing about Mars, you can hear when he's playing on something and that's sort of the greatest part of it. You know, yeah. there's, there's a few of those guys. I believe Shannon Forrest is a lot the same way. I think yeah. he's got a real style to him. Sure. And, uh, and I love that. However much you're being reined in to play on whatever country record, you can still make yourself... Mm-hmm. You can still put your stamp on it because you're just doing what you do and that's it's going to kind of come back to the same thing you know uh, I, the other day I heard something on the radio I said oh that's Ringo on drums and my son goes so you can hear the th-? I said well sometimes you can yeah but don't give me credit I just know that he played on that record yeah 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 you know but sometimes you can yeah and sometimes it's like oh that's Shannon I know that Shannon yeah for sure I love that yeah you know, you, and you hear the voice or even Chad Cromwell is the way he tunes his snare drum or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you yeah. kind of hear those, those things. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, some of the records that you've played on. And, like, I, I know a little bit of the story of working with Taylor Swift, mm-hmm. but 
what I'm curious about is the relationship with the producer or her camp that was involved. I know early on, uh, just in talking with Tim, Mm -hmm. um, he didn't know who this person was and what was going to happen with that. Sure. But what was your relationship with the producer or how did that come about? How did that evolve? Yeah, well, that was, I mean, it goes back to like you just never know where something's going to go, you know? And I mean... Uh, so Nathan Chapman is her producer and I met Nathan actually through a recommendation from Tim Tim knew Nathan through some I think they were both living in East Nashville at a time when not everybody was living in East Nashville and yeah. and Nate was doing these uh, basement style demos and stuff and pretty much doing everything himself but he needed a drum track and I had decided I was going to at the time that I thought I'm going to get into sessions I'd also decided and I'm going to get a home rig and this was at a time when you know that was still pretty new but I was thinking at least then if somebody didn't have the confidence to call me to actually be in a session maybe they would give me a shot if they knew I was just putting drums on at home and it wasn't costing them like a whole session's worth or whatever Mm -hmm. so I bought a little Pro Tools rig and at the time it was like a side room of the house and it was it was essentially a bedroom that had the drum set up. Mm-hmm. And so Nate came over. So anyway, Tim had said, this guy Nathan needs a drum track. And it was one of those things. I remember thinking, like, I have this that I could do, um, but I should call Nathan and see. Maybe he wants to come over. And I was hesitant because I wasn't super confident in the room yet or in the drum sounds or, or even in my ability with Pro Tools at that point. Mm-hmm. But I thought, well, I'll just I'll just do it because, you know, whatever. And, and so he, he came over that evening, I think, and he had two tracks. One of them uh, was for his wife, Stephanie, um, and one of them was for Lori McKenna, who at the time, Lori was also just a singer-songwriter out of Boston that was doing some writing in Nashville with Liz Rose, and uh, this was a song that Nathan was producing as a sort of very new, hadn't really done anything yet. Came over, we just vibed, we got on well. The tracks, he liked the way the room sounded in its complete amateur style deal. <laughs> uh, like car like you know, whatever, carpeted square room. I mean, whatever. It had a thing, I guess. Um and anyway, uh he and I just became friends and he started doing demo sessions like crazy because he wanted to get into that world and at the time uh his wife Stephanie and Liz were writing together at Jody Williams Music and Liz told Nathan that she'd use him to do all her demos. Uh, and so we were just doing demos for like a year, insane amounts of demos. And he used me and he used Tim because he liked, we had a good vibe and he just, and neither of us, Tim nor I had had much session, um, you know, uh, time up until that point. And so we were just happy to get be being, being paid to do the work. I mean, I'd spent a good while before that trying to get into doing sessions and occasionally a friend would call me to do something, but hardly at all, you know? Yeah. So there was a lot of learning being done in that year. It's um, Tim Marks, basically. Tim Marks, yes, 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 yes. Um, so one of those sessions, uh, a Liz Rose session, was a co-write that she had with this young girl, Taylor, Taylor mm-hmm. Swift. And so she came in, and it was just demos. And Liz would do this. She would bring in uh, young writers that she had met, and we would do the stuff, and we just did what we did. And honestly, at the time, Nathan was very focused on trying to make Laurie McKenna happened before she had had the big cuts that she had had and whatever wow. she was a great Boston artist and the idea was she was going to get signed and Nathan was going to get to produce her record that ended up not happening but whilst this was going on Taylor came in we did some demos for her 
And at the time, she was actually recording a record with another producer for Big Machine. That had all kind of gone down already. And she, after hearing what we had done to those songs, decided she didn't like what she had been doing up until that point. You know, So she went back to uh, Scott Porchetta and said, I, don't, I want to try this with Nathan because yeah. I like this and I don't like this other stuff. Yeah. Nathan is an, a non, a, like completely no name in the studio world. And so Scott eventually gives in and says, okay, fine, we'll, we'll have him do three songs. And then Nathan says, okay, but I have to use my guys. Complete unknowns, you know? <laughs> and Scott's about to give all this money to do these sessions yeah. for an artist who he's already spent a bunch of money on, yeah. uh, who has turned around and just said, no, I don't want to do this anymore, I want to do this, uh, with a bunch of unknowns. You was know? she 15 at the time? And she was 15, just yeah. Being, yeah. All right, that's... And threw a fit about it. Like, she was not going to have it any other way. And so, <laughs> so um, supposedly through I mean she made it happen however <laughs> she made it happen so we went in the studio and I mean as far as we were all concerned this was the first master session I'd ever done and I was just psyched to be getting paid master scale on something for the first time mm-hmm. so we went in the studio and recorded three songs and honestly that might have been the last the first and last three songs we did for her mm-hmm. but Nathan worked his butt off on it and ended up uh, with with great tracks that Scott thought were awesome. So he said, okay, well, let's do another three. We'll see how these go. We did it again until we had the first record. Um, and it was it was amazing that, that we actually got to get the whole thing, and at some point we weren't just replaced by somebody else, but, but great. So it worked out. The first record came out, and nobody in, in on the player side or producer side really thought that it was... Like, this was a 15-year-old girl and whatever. Yes, she was talented. And yes, she knew what she wanted. Even at yeah. 15, I remember doing takes and getting done with the take. And Taylor, bef- and me thinking, ah, I think I would do another one, but we'll see what, you know, we'll see what they say about it. And Taylor saying, yeah, guys, I just didn't feel it on that one. We, we need to do another one. I was like, yeah, I heard that too. You know, whatever. And this yeah. is a 15-year-old girl who had written all her own songs. I mean, co-writes with Liz on some of them, but she'd written some on her own even at that point knowing when it felt right and when it didn't you know wow that is i was like this girl knows what's up you know but still 15 year old girl country what are the chances you know so we're pretty sure it wasn't going to go anywhere and that was going to be the last we heard of it and it was i was just happy okay so we got some master pay on some stuff cool yeah and then it started stuff started happening she won i remember hearing it for the first time i was in green hills leaving the green hills mall in my car and when I heard uh, the Tim McGraw song on the radio, I think, oh, that's so cool. That's me playing on the radio. Yeah. And then uh, soon after that, they had one of those head-to-head type things with like on, on whatever country station with Taylor versus like a Faith Hill song that had just come out or something. And they had the viewers, I mean the viewers, the listeners call in and say which one was best or whatever. And Taylor won the 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 song off or whatever, however they call it. You know, we're yeah. like, wow, it's, people really like the song. Nice. And then a year and a half later, they came back and, and the song, this record had blown up. And I, I learned actually from friends of mine on the road that were calling me and saying, man, so you played on this Taylor record? I was like, yeah. And they were like, yeah, it's huge. And I had no idea because yeah. I never listened to as much country music as I probably should or country radio. So anyway, we got to go in and do the Fearless record. Taylor was still super excited about everything, jumping off the walls. Um, and that was the the Fearless record was the coolest experience I've maybe nice. had in 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 popular recording so far because we went in as a group of guys that had now all 
seen some success. Yes. Um, and we were about to start on a record that we knew was going to be huge beforehand. And that's the first time I'd ever done that. You know, going on to work on something with friends. Yes. And knowing that whatever we were doing was going to sell millions of copies. You that's, know? Yeah, that's so, so that was really... That was really so the, a so cool the pressure was off and the pressure was on at the same time. It was, but the coolest thing about that record too was the pressure was off because the first record had done well. Yeah. And although I know there should have been pressure to make the second one better and cooler, it, was, it wasn't... Like, the Fearless was the middle record as far as, like, right after it, Taylor had proven herself and we had luckily been able to prove ourselves, and before the big clamp came down for, like, the next record where it was all about keeping yourself validated. You know, the Fearless record was in the middle where we were still very valid and got to free up. And mm-hmm. to me, I think you hear it on the record. I mean, it's the playing is open, got to do some crazy stuff. Um, the sounds on the record were uh, Justin Ebank uh, mixed that record and it sounds incredible the drums sound huge I told him more than a few times how thankful I was because country records you know you put you know three acoustic parts steel banjo keys organ everything else and the drums end up being very squashed in the background but for for the way that Justin mixed that record it was open and huge and and I, you know that to me was it and then obviously stuff with Taylor after that I mean was, everything was still great and I was still happy anytime I got to go in with her and do stuff because she's awesome to work with she's yeah. super appreciative of, of her players both live and, and in the studio you know and so it was always a pleasure getting to hang out with her and, and do that uh, not to geek out but what uh was there something that you were using in the studio? Were you using multiple kits when you were putting, like Fearless, for example? Yeah, on some of those sessions, on Fearless record and the next record, I, I would sometimes go in and have my sort of main setup, which actually on the Fearless record, it was this pork pie kit, um, was the main kit on that. Um, but then, and then I would have a second kit set up that would be like a vintage kit, older sounds, and we would sometimes use for loops and stuff. Okay. Um, or verses or things like that where it would be like a different sound on, on a verse thing I'd play and then I would switch over and it would be a big chorus on the big kit you know what wow. I mean or something like that that's cool and uh, so yeah we, we got to mess around a lot more with yeah. those types of things and you know the thing <laughs> funny thing about it is we often had to like think about slowing down or, or wish that we would slow down because Taylor's songs were so good coming in that we would fly through recording them. And obviously as a player, like you want to, A, you want to take the time. We would to mess with different sounds and yeah. go into different rooms with different drums. I mean, I remember, you know, going into an echo chamber in studio and beating the crap out of a kick drum and doing, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. there are different things you want to try. And we, we would do all that, but very rarely did anything go past the third take on a Taylor song. Well, if a song is well written, sometimes the part falls in your lap. It does. You're like, I know exactly what to do with this. It's yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you don't. I mean, that's. I think. I think one. It's a. You you see it on both sides when you're playing it. You're like, man, I didn't even think about what I'm playing. Man, this is a great song. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, and a lot of her songs are like that. I mean, if anything. If anything, it would just be like, that worked perfectly great. What if we try a different approach mm-hmm. to this so that we move to a different area or whatever it is? And then you have to think about like, okay, let me get out of what I was thinking on this, just doing this regular groove and do this Tom thing instead or do this, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And then, but 
even so, it developed so fast that that's great. And like I said, some of them were one takes. You know, we would get through it, and Nate would be like, "Man, it feels great, sounds great." And it's not like he was replacing stuff with anything. A lot of times on those records, there it was. The sounds were what they were. Oh yeah. You know, it got mixed and it was done. You know. Yeah. Um, others took a little, like sometimes it would take a while, but like I said, rarely over three or four takes. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it was. I think testament to both the the songs, the artists, and the players on all that. And that's honestly a lot of people talk about those records with Taylor and how there was just a chemistry. I think that there really was. You know, everybody oh, yeah. fed off each other, and that's yeah. that's yeah. what that was. You know, did, was that did that experience kind of uh, kind of give you this launching point, or, or did it did it lead to other things that? You've been able to hold on to those relationships, that music. I mean, obviously the experience that you got, yeah. that, that you can. Um, but I mean, the relationships with producers, other musicians, and stuff like. That. You know, yes and no. I, it's funny. You would think that like you have a launching pad like that, and any like all doors open. <laughs> but the reality is, is it also casts a big shadow, like mm. because it's it's very like a lot of those Taylor tracks are very sort of young bombastic style rock tracks like those choruses are big even if it's four on the floor it's big crashy ride and it's mm-hmm. you know all that sort of stuff because that's I feel like what a call for I mean that's that is what it was and and it's exciting when a song is great and you're playing it and that's what it is however it can come off as being uh, young sounding I mean she's very young I mean that's kind of what it was um, and I've heard I've heard sort of like remarks here and there from producers about like sounding like a teenage rock band on some of those songs and stuff mm-hmm. which is okay cool but I could also see how that doesn't necessarily make them say man I want the drummer on that track to be on mm-hmm. my recording and that's it's a it's it, like, it, I was it hit me in a weird gig. I was playing well, that's, but that's what you would hope that they would see. Like, man, that's right. the perfect thing for that track. But and you, then they, and then they yeah. can, because they can also hear me on whatever tracks where there were brushes or whatever other stuff I've done yes. on other records, and and hear that like you recorded a uh, Minnie Smith's record. I did some of that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yep, yeah. I did some of the Long Island Chores record. Yeah. Um, which was their second one, and that was an interesting experience. I mean. I love Mindy. We had toured together for uh, most of a year before that. And she, it was because of her that I was on that record, not because of the producer. Oh. I was still hadn't done a whole lot of work at that point. I think Taylor's record was just... I think it was all about the same time that that was happening. Uh, I was not particularly known, but I had been playing with Mindy, and it's very feely kind of stuff. And she said, yeah. I want this guy on the record. And nice. the producer had wanted whoever from whatever guy whatever and so he sort of gave in and it was a great band yeah but I was not as confident as I should have been because I knew I wasn't the producer's pick and I went in Mm. knowing that and feeling apprehensive about what I was going to play or how I was going to do it and it got the best of me Mm. and it doesn't matter that he wasn't particularly nice to me to start off with you Mm. know it would have been nice if it had been a better experience, but it, it just, unfortunately, it just wasn't. And and when the record got done and I heard it, I thought, you know, the tracks I played on are cool. Yeah. That's all good. But the rest of it, I was like, yeah, okay. It's, they flattened a lot of that stuff. Like, it could have been, I, I think it could have been a lot cooler, but yeah. but it was it was what it was. And uh, and yeah. it was, and to be honest, it, 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 it ends up being cool to have done that on the resume and I love Mindy like even today I love I mean she's 
one of a kind singer. She's insane. She's Playing great. with her was yeah. was amazing because she we. <laughs> I remember once in Minneapolis, we played this bar, and it was completely sold out. But it was just a bar. We were normally doing theaters, and this was a downtown bar. And it was packed from the stage all the way to the back window. But it was, you know, you got the cash register going at the bar. You got people with <laughs> the drinks and the glasses and everything else. And we started out the set with a ballad at a bar, you know, and in Minneapolis. And by the chorus, it was silent. <laughs> Yeah. Like the full packed bar was glued on Mindy. Yeah. And that was it. And I was like, this girl, not too many people can do that. You know? So I played was, with a guy downtown, and when she first moved to town, and she was kind of quote unquote opening up for us. Yeah, yeah. And after she was done, I'm like, I don't, can we go home now? Yeah. I don't want to follow her. Yeah, yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, we did a similar thing at Austin City when it was the festival. We played wow. the festival and, and we were outside, sun's out, you know, rock, yeah. there's a stage on the other side of the field with whatever rock band playing and whatever else. Yeah. And we go on and, and we do some semi-tempo songs or whatever, yeah. but we did, um, the ballads just didn't feel right to do a ballad on an outdoor festival like that. Yeah. But however many thousands of people were there were just fixated on yeah, it. You can't know? help it. You can't yeah. Help it. So anyway. Man, I, I, I do kind of want to wrap, wrap it up yeah, a little yeah. bit. But uh, at the same time, I, I think it's you brought up some really great points as far as I love that the idea that Taylor Swift's recording experience was relatively early on in your studio experience. Very early. And yet you came in and you kicked it, kicked its butt. I think I didn't know any better. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think part no, of you did. Was you that, did, you know? man. You, I mean, you have all this experience leading up to it. Yeah. So, and uh, or dealing with uh, the producer with or dealing with the uh, personalities with Mindy's recording. Yeah. Somehow overcoming those things. Yeah. And bringing your best game that you you can, and yeah. not uh, seeing this opportunity, uh, seeing the opportunities for what they are. Yeah. And really embracing them and taking everything that you do seriously and doing. <laughs> You know the thing, I think I can wrap all of that experiences up with basically what I've learned over the last, particularly over the last year, because the scene in this town is continually changing and it's getting uh-huh. tougher and tougher. I mean, yeah. it really is. Um, it, it sounds negative, but it's really positive to say you have to learn to not give a shit. And that's, and, and, I, and the thing about it, like I gave too much of a shit with some of the stuff mm-hmm. like with the with the Mindy thing I was too concerned about how I was being seen by this guy and how what yeah. if I was going to play it was going to be the right thing or the wrong thing or how it was going to go um, there, there's got to be a point at which obviously there's everybody's got different viewpoints and is going to perceive things mm-hmm. however they're going to be perceived and you can't control that at all Mm-hmm. So you have to go in it and It goes know. back to the people who are going to hire you for what you do or not hire exactly. you for what you do. And, and as much as you can try and you can somewhat understand where the producer's coming from if you listen to what other stuff they've done, mm. get into that kind of mindset when going in because they like this kind of vibe. That's cool. But don't alter the kind of stuff that you would play you know, yeah. once that's been, once that's been done, you know, you have to, you have to go in and do your thing. Yes. And like I said, if there's, if you, if you are a musical player, yeah. uh, it will, 
and and you know when you are. You know when things give you goosebumps. You know, we talked at the James Taylor concert, and we were both like, we were about to cry and hug about it. You know, because it's we did, and that we did actually. There was some crying and hugging actually. And I think I think the point of that is that it is so musical and it hits you in a way. If it if music does that to you, then you are a musical player when you play because that stuff comes right back out when you're thinking of the kind of part or what's going to blend well with the artist and whatever you know I think if you have that you've just got to let it out and very often I have uh, I think uh, I've gotten in the way of myself on sessions by trying to think too much about what would be right or wrong and you have to essentially the best thing is to not give a shit and and do what the most natural thing is for it's dude wise words man that's really great yeah have mentioned endorsements that they've had and like I say we don't know where this is going to go and if we can get people to help us out with this it would be great yeah but is that uh, are you do you want to say anything about that or anybody oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) absolutely because I mean the reality is is I I don't do a lot of touring these days and so and session guys don't get a lot of endorsement type stuff because artists don't I remember seeing back in the day you know, uh, my favorite drummer or whatever would be on the record. And I would say, see like whoever Jeff Picaro would like to thank, you know, yes. and all his endorsers and stuff. Now you're lucky to even get mentioned as a player on the record. Forget about the endorsers. You know? Right. So whenever, I mean, I feel, I feel completely astounded and lucky that, you know, like Evans, uh, has, I've been with Evans for quite a few years now mm-hmm. and they've been so cool. Uh, with with everything, I, I can't even say enough about them. A, I was playing them. The biggest thing about endorsements is don't get endorsed just to get endorsed. Mm-hmm. Get endorsed to help you with the stuff that you love anyway. Mm-hmm. It's hard to endorse a product that you didn't love beforehand because yes. the whole thing about endorsements is you're endorsing the fact that you love what they make. You right. know, I've been playing Evans for years. Yeah, when they when I was able to sign on, and I signed with another head company first because I had an in and I wasn't any kind of I hadn't done anything. And it just kind of fizzled out because I wasn't a huge fan of what they did. And then I was able to get an Evans deal and it's just gotten better and better with that because endorsements are about relationships. When you love what you play and that company gets behind you, yes. great. Uh, I, I'm a recent Sabian endorsee as of maybe a year and a half, two years ago. Okay. But since I've been with them, I always feel like, like I said, for session players, for, for endorsers to get behind um, session players is... I love it. And and obviously they're seeing like, hey, I could get called to play for whatever big artist out on the road because session players sometimes get called for bigger gigs because for whatever reason, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I understand they're investing in down the road. I'm just happy they're investing at all. Yeah, <laughs> you know? nice. And I just haven't gone, I haven't necessarily gone with a drum company because I love, I love all kinds of different drums. And, and I'm happy to, if I got a big road gig, there, there are a couple of guys I would go to and say, help me out with this because I'd like some on the mm-hmm. road support. But being mm-hmm. mostly session stuff now, I'm happy to be in between. Well, we're taking some pictures of this beautiful pork pie kit. Yeah, yeah. And all that stuff. Pork pie's been, Bill Dedimore pork pie has been, been awesome. I've, I've known him for years and uh, I haven't actually had a new kit in a long time, but uh, but he is, today he is putting a new kit in the mail that he just made for me that we talked about 
completely designed, different from anything else that he's done, different types of shells, different finishes, everything else. I wanted something that was different and unique, and he uh, he was into it, and I, I wanted him to be a craftsman on it and do what he loved and make it look great the way mm-hmm. he wants it done. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to get him. So... That's great, but I don't have to sign anything with Bill. You know, if I want if I want a pork pie drum, I call him and he'll give me a great deal on it, and we'll nice. call it a day. You know, and I'm excited to you know. hear it, man. Me too. Just, me too. I think it's gonna be awesome. There's there's a small group of drummers, and I and we get together. It's just it, it's anywhere from three to six or seven of us depending on who can yeah. make it and that's a, at, at the most I think it's six or seven of us in this group and when we get together is it the drummer lunch thing or no, is it something different okay. it's not at all the drummer lunch thing because uh, the, I mean that's cool and all but but we don't get together just to geek out on drums we all live the same type of stuff we all get involved in sessions that go the same kind of good way or the same kind of bad way mm-hmm. <laughs> and we and it's and life stuff uh, ends up being somewhat similar because we're all kind of uh, fighting the same battles, you know, mm-hmm. as drummers, but also just as players. And I think that's where this kind of comes in. I mean, you could have a, a, a guitar player or a bass player tell similar stories to what I'm talking about so because it's the experience it. of being in that creative environment and how to deal with it, you know, and what's being asked of you and all yeah. that sort of stuff. So I think I think it easily expands way beyond mm-hmm. geeky drum stuff. A lot of times when I'm talking about stuff, it is about music, not about drums, you know, because I love drums, but I'm not like Morrow. I call Morrow for advice on drums because <laughs> he knows drums. Yeah. But a lot of times when I'm thinking about uh, what I do, it's more, it's not playing drums, it's playing music and yes. stuff, you know, and I think. Well, that's why I think that's, that's why you play the way you do. And that's why you've had the success you've had is because you're coming from that angle yeah. as opposed to, well, I believe, I mean. I love drums too, but I mean, we were just talking about playing piano and all those fun things yeah. that just like I love music so much. Yeah. And, uh, although I like to geek out and watch Jeff Beck live at Ronnie Scott's. Sure, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, of course. Or go to the Rush concert or any of yeah. these things and kind of relive my childhood. Good music. I have so much stuff on my my phone right now that has no drums on it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm always, I remember, uh, talking to just a little tangent, talking to, uh, Ilya Tashinsky, Tashinsky is a very well known, oh, uh, yeah. banjo, banjo, yeah. acoustic guitar, played with, player um, um Baron Strait. Baron Strait is where he got his start. And, uh, uh, but he's, you know, he's been the guy in town for a long time, but we were talking and there's this, uh, uh, album that's got uh, Edgar Meyer, Bela Fleck, and it's called the Telluride Sessions. Sam Bush on there, um, and um, and I, I know that record backwards. And it's a, it's essentially an instrumental bluegrass record um, of some of the great the greatest of the bluegrass players. Mm-hmm. And the fact he started playing a little riff from it one day, and I completely you know was kind of singing along to it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was like, "How do you know this record?" And I was like, "Well, because I love music. I'm not just playing drums here. That's freaking. That's a badass record. Yeah, <laughs> of course yeah. I know that record. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, you know, it's the same as when you, you know, when you love a song and then you're playing it for somebody. Like, check out the song. So awesome. It doesn't have to be something you've played on. Just whatever song. 
like I get sometimes I get emotional at how much I love the song and playing it for somebody like isn't this awesome how badass is the song you know music it's, it's, I do that all the time I'll be exposing my kids to certain music certain bands and stuff and yeah. things like that we'll put a record on and I'll say fuck yeah, yeah. this is it <laughs> yeah it's, now, now I have to break silence. I noticed one omission in your influences. Yeah. Uh, Trevor Rabin from South Africa. Oh, wow. <laughs> Trevor Rabin. I know who Trevor Rabin is. Oh, but, uh, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I knew he was from South Africa, and uh, I just wondered if is, is that like a big name there when you were there? When you were uh, no, he, he was back was a band when I was there. Or something like that? Yeah, 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 I think so. And I just don't, I, I just didn't yeah. know very much of it. But, but, yeah. There are plenty of them. Anton Fig is yeah. is from Cape Town, and his uh, family and my family were friends, and and oh, I knew he knew me when I was five years old. You still have, kid. Do you still know him? You and I still know him. Absolutely, that's cool. If I'm ever in New York or if he's ever here, there's a text and a what are you doing or whatever, and we we try to get together whenever that happens. And, and I've been lucky enough to play a Letterman show here and there, and, mm-hmm. and I've gotten to. You know what? With him, in fact, that kind of broke out. You know, we hadn't connected in a long time, and I played Letterman with Randy Hauser years ago. Wow. That's what I saw. I, about yeah. two weeks ago, um, John... Keyboard player. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was on that gig. Yeah, Lan- and Lancaster. Had, yeah, John Lancaster yeah, posted yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, and that's I, right. Yes, and um, I, I went... I don't remember what he said about it, but I, so I jumped on the video and there were you and Tim you guys all had your fedoras on it's so funny we had run into a hat store the night before we got there the night before the <laughs> and we went to some bar right next door to the bar was a hat store that was still open at like 9 o'clock so we walk in and we're looking at these hats and the, the lady running the hat store was like if you wear this on the show we told her we were going to be playing Letterman the next night she was like, if you wear these on the show, you can have them for free. We're like, hell oh, yeah. So we all got hats, and then we were all wearing hats on the show so the next night. <laughs> so ridiculous. Well, man, I, I, you sounded great on it, man. It oh. just, I, I, you did something, you came back over like to bring a song down, you came back over and played this hi-hat fill that just settled it right into the next thing. And I was like, that was fucking cool, man. Oh, man. That was really cool. But it's a, And it was a good recording. Letterman does a good, good job. Yeah. And I think you could see... And there was a shot because wasn't uh, Paul playing? He was playing along too. Yeah. He was playing B three on it, and Lancaster yeah. was playing piano. Yeah, yeah. It was cool, and it was funny because Letterman was a huge Hauser fan at that point. Letterman himself was the one that requested that Hauser play on the show. Really? Yeah, he had heard him at his ranch or something on the radio. And was like, I want that guy, yes. and uh, and he even asked us to read. Like there was a part of the song that he wanted to hear again, like a, a verse that he wanted to hear again at the end. And so we rearranged the song at rehearsal, soundtrack rehearsal, whatever, too after the chorus actually break down into a verse and then go into the last chorus like, like it extended even a little bit because he wanted to hear it it was interesting how it came around man thank you so much yeah there's so much good stuff that I don't know if we're gonna have to do any editing whatsoever <laughs> yeah no it's really good I mean because I love the stories and how it relates to what you've learned and uh, it's the stuff that I, I kind of don't know what our audience is. I can only guess. People are curious. My goal is to make this so cool that non-drummers are interested yeah. in what's going on. I think um, this, and you know, a lot of stuff that we talk about, yes, I mean, some stuff has to do with drums. Yeah. But but it's, it's the music. It's music. 